Welcome to the Christian Drummers Podcast, discussing the art of drumming to the glory of Almighty God. God demonstrated His power in the Messiah by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put everything under his feet, and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Howdy, friends. It is, as always, a glorious time to be a drummer in the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. On this episode, we'll continue to discuss the fundamentals of worship leading, specifically continuing our talk about the environment of worship. Then on a more practical level, we'll talk about creating drum parts. Specifically this time, creating drum parts out of thin air, not just replicating what we've heard. So, let us make a beginning. So last episode, we talked about worshiping in spirit and truth, and we discussed how that's a Trinitarian statement. When the Lord spoke to the Samaritan woman and he said, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, he was talking about where worship occurs, because that was her question, and he's talking about worshiping the Father, in the Spirit, and in the truth. And of course, we know Jesus himself is the truth. So that's a pretty heavy statement about how the Father is actually worshipped in the Son and in the Spirit. That somehow mystically, just as the Son is in the Father, we are in the Son, and we are in the Spirit, and the Lord somehow brings us in as we offer him our worship. Now, I want to talk about how the Bible reveals that to us in terms of our creaturely experience. So let's start with the Spirit. Where is the realm of the Spirit? Recall in Revelation 1 how John just kind of offhandedly throws out, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, etc., etc. And then later on, he'll say, before he sees all these grand and glorious visions of worship in the heavenlies, he says, After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will tell you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and a throne was set there in heaven. And he goes on and describes the scene, right? So, somehow, in the realm of the Spirit, St. John sees all of, all of heaven. He sees all of its worship. And you can recall that Isaiah had a similar experience. So, if we are in the Spirit, in the Spirit's power to offer our worship, there's some way that we're brought up into the heavenly court. And there has to be a way to get there. 
And that's what it means to worship in the truth, our Lord Jesus. As it says in Hebrews, and man, I'll quote Hebrews a lot. Every priest stands day to day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. So recall at the ascension, Jesus was taken up into heaven. His physical form was taken up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God, where he continues to this day. And him being seated in the heavenlies is a big deal, and it's the reason that we used to celebrate the Ascension Day, because in him we are seated at the right hand of God. Remember, as it says in Ephesians, together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So in Christ, we're seated in the heavenlies. He is the means by which we can enter the heavenly sanctuary. Going back to Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way he has opened for us, through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. Now, you'll recall that in Hebrews, it's talking about how we, in the New Covenant, have access to the true temple in the heavenlies, not the copy that was made here on earth that the um, Levitical priesthood ministered and uh, the sacrifices and all that, that's all gone, so that we have direct access into the throne room of heaven, and we can approach God through Christ, who's our mediator. We don't need an earthly priest anymore. Now, this argument continues on through Hebrews and talks about the famous roll call of faith, and then reaches this really clear and direct statement in chapter 12. For you have not come to what could be touched to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. And if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am afraid and trembling. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. So this is a pretty profound statement about the environment of worship, that it's actually in the heavenly Jerusalem that it's with the entire company of heaven, the angels, the assembly of the firstborn, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus the mediator, 
You see what this is saying? Because this is being said to the people to whom this was addressed in past tense. You have come to Mount Zion and to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, what is this heavenly Jerusalem? Well, recall as Paul said to the Galatians, Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Present for him, right? But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So here's that heavenly Jerusalem, of which you're a citizen, who is your mother. Later in the Revelation, of course, you know, St. John will refer to the same Jerusalem as the bride. So let's put this all together. In the spirit, we're lifted up into the realm of heaven. Through Jesus, the truth, we are brought into the heavenly court. He is the way. He's the way both in the sense that he's the sacrifice that allows us the right to come in there. And he is physically the way, and that is his ascended humanity has us seated with him in the heavenly court. And he's making intercession for us so that we can come. And then we really are present in this glorious scene that was depicted for us in Hebrews, and that St. John um, paints so vividly in the fourth and fifth, well, and in all the chapters of the Revelation. That's what you've come to. It's much, much more than us simply being seated behind a drum set in a building with maybe a few hundred people, and we're all just kind of looking at each other, and in some mumbo-jumbo way, God's there, you know? No. This is really what's going on. And this is the way that the church used to always understand this, that we all worship as one because we all go into heaven. And that's why in like traditional liturgies, you'll have what's called the Sursum Corda and the Sanctus, where we'll say, um, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give our thanks and praise. It is meet and right so to do. And then we'll say, Therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name, evermore praising thee and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Well, the reason they would write all that is they were assuming that we are ascending into heaven to worship and that since the angels are there with us and that's what they sing, then that's what we sing. The assumption has always been that we're all together. And this still continues even in, you know, more evangelical, Protestant, uh, very low church kind of circles. I mean, it's part of our parlance to always say, well, we're coming before the throne or, you know, tell the worship leader, you really took us to the throne. Well, the thing is, we all know that we really are being taken to the throne. That's a big deal. And it's going to have a lot of ethical implications for what we do and how we do it. To that, we'll turn next time. But I would like you to, um, actually, your homework assignment ought to be read Hebrews. But uh, I would like you to consider some of these passages, consider some of the implications, and then how it goes deeper into the very um, life of God the Holy Trinity himself. In the Spirit and in the truth, we are drawn in to worship the Father. He brings us into the sanctuary 
into most intimate fellowship with him. And that's a responsibility that we need to take very seriously. All right, let's talk now about drum parts, specifically about inventing drum parts. These principles will hold true for both worship and entertainment music, but some of the things that I'll draw out are going to deal more with creating a part for a worship song. Now, this could either be a new song that someone's just written, or it might just be a rearrangement of another song, but one way or the other, you're going to have to come up with a new drum part. So what do you do? Most people don't really think about that too much. They just kind of start playing. Oftentimes you may get some direction on the feel or the rhythm from the songwriter, band leader, whatever. That's always most helpful. But let's just say someone's like, here's what I'm going to play. What are you going to do? The first thing is that you've got to open up your ears and pay attention to what you're hearing. This is where it is most helpful to have a knowledge of rhythm and a knowledge of music. You might want to go and listen to our past episode where one of our fundamentals was about the permutations of popular common rhythm. So the first thing that you're going to listen to, well, I tend to build things from the bottom up, so let's listen to the bass player. What rhythm is he playing? Is he playing something steady and unchanging like eighth notes or quarter notes? That's going to give you some idea of how the song is going to drive. But if he's playing a definite pattern, there's your starting point. Mimic that. Now, we know stylistically, for example, rock and roll, um, then you're going to outline eighth notes or quarter notes on a cymbal or a hi-hat, and there's more than likely going to be a two and four on the snare, right? So we already know kind of the confines of that style. So the kick drum pattern would be what determines the groove, and of course you want that to match what the bassist is doing. It doesn't always have to exactly mimic what the bassist is doing. You don't have to only play his notes, or he doesn't have to only play yours. As a matter of fact, if it's just you and the bass going bonk, 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 more often than not, that's not really going to groove. One of you has to have a couple of notes to himself, in my experience, to um, have it continue to roll forward. But it depends. If it's a very involved riff, then you can get away with just playing each other's parts. But what if the bass is simply playing eighth notes? Or what if the bass isn't there? Or what if the bass is doing something that doesn't really give you an idea of what to do? For popular kinds of music, and especially worship music, the next thing you're going to want to listen to is the strum pattern of the guitar. And you're going to find that it's usually going to do only a couple of things. Now the reason for that is kind of involved, and it mostly has to do with the importation of African rhythm into um, North American music. It has also found its way, of course, into Latin American music, but it's more explicitly defined. The short version of that is that the guitarist is usually strumming some form of clave. Bum, 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 bum. He might be doing it slow. Bum, bum, bum. 
something like that. But he's usually playing clave. And so if you know that, then you have some direction as to what notes in the measure that you're going to stress in order to match him and complement him and bring some kind of motion to the groove. Of course, if you're playing worship music, you're also going to have a piano player often. And if they're not too busy of a piano player, you're going to get a real sense of what rhythms they're stressing and repeating and how to match that. And then, of course, kind of overriding the whole thing is going to be the placement and the content, even, of the lyrics. They have to be supported whether we're talking about a pop song or whether we're talking about worship leading, especially in terms of worship leading, because the lyrics have to sit and fall naturally if you're going to get that many people to sing along. But even if you're supporting only one vocalist, you've got to give them something to work with so that they know where their syllables are going to fall. Now, the actual content of the lyrics is also going to determine what you do. What if they're singing about something really heavy and dramatic? Well, that's going to affect your sound choices. Do I hit the kick drum on this stressed beat, or do I hit the snare drum? Is there a cymbal crash here, or is it a floor tom? Listen to what they're saying, and what best supports that, both rhythmically and thematically. And that brings us to all kinds of aesthetic decisions. And that really is where art comes in. And that's really where your taste and understanding come in. Because if I have a guitarist strumming clave, bam, 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 that could all be on the kick drum. The ah uh of beat one could be on the snare. Or I could delay the snare on beat two and actually play the and of two to match that strum pattern. Things like that. And that's going to really change the flavor of a groove. If I'm just going boom, da bat, doom, doom, bat, well, that's very rock and roll. But if I'm going doom, cat, 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 doom, cat, cat, doom, cat, well, that's going to give it more of a Latin feel. And that's going to change the tone of the song. So those kind of aesthetic decisions are going to be determined, of course, by what the leader wants and what the style of the music is and um, what that song is trying to say. But it's also going to be dependent on your knowledge of how to um, orchestrate the things that you play in terms of their sound quality as well as the actual number and placement of notes. Of course, that's something that you can spend a lifetime chasing, and we all are. Now, when it comes to popular forms of music, just entertainment music. Again, those kind of aesthetic decisions are going to be determined by what are you trying to say? What are you trying to create? What mood are you trying to express to your audience? What are you trying to draw them into? If it's going to be really heavy, if you're like a metal band, you know, a lot of that's going to be on the kick drum, a lot of that's going to be on the toms. There's not going to be a whole lot of uh, lighthearted syncopation, right? But if I'm playing in a jazz group, there's going to be tons of that. If I'm doing, uh, you know, like a, a light samba kind of deal, well, I'm going to be really up on top of the kit and, and making more of a light feel come out of the same rhythms, right? Now, again, when we're leading worship, there's going to be a lot of pastoral concerns guiding my choices because I don't want to be 
too busy, too confusing. I don't want my rhythms to be so elegant that nobody really knows how to follow them. I want to lead them, again, so that they know where their syllables uh, are naturally going to fall. Because my job is to make it easier for them to sing. I also want to play things that help draw them into the mood of the worship song. Like, I don't want to play too quietly when it's supposed to be big and joyful. I don't want to play too loudly when it's supposed to be peaceful and reverent. Those sorts of things. So as you approach coming up with a drum part next time, take a minute and don't just start playing, but really think about what's going on. What are the different instruments playing? Ask to hear. What are you going to play? What are you going to play? Could you play this together for me? Listen to it. Listen to the lyrics. Listen to where the singer wants to place the lyrics. Listen to what the singer is saying with the lyrics. Make some aesthetic choices. Don't just play by rote what you know to play. Would this be enhanced if you orchestrated the beat here? Would this be... um, would this effect be lessened if you were to do this thing that you really want to do, but you're going to choose to edit yourself? And then again, if you're leading worship especially, think about the effect you're having on the people hearing the music. Are you drawing them in? Is the groove becoming infectious enough that they feel it? And so they know, you know where to sing in a church or where to dance in a club or whatever that you're making it easy for them, that you're making the feel accessible. And above all, use your creativity with this and have fun. That's the joy of being a drummer. You can never experiment with this too much. All right, let's bring it home. I got to gear up for my gig tonight. My shout outs this week. I think I've already talked about him before, but um, man, Dr. James White is killing it on the dividing line lately. So you can check him out on YouTube or on iTunes. The show is The Dividing Line by Dr. James White. I'm really getting a lot out of that. Also, if you're interested in a new devotional, My friend, the Reverend Dr. Charles Erlinson, has a great devotional called Give Us This Day, and it's just moved over to the Patheos blog, so look that up online and check it out. I love his insights into scripture. Now, if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it, and please talk to me. I love the feedback that I've gotten, but I want so much more because I really want to get to know my listeners and want to know what you want to hear. What can we talk about that would be interesting to you? So you can get a hold of me at johnny at johnnydrums.com. You can visit johnnydrums.com for information about lessons and recording and etc. And there you can find my links to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. And now let's finish with a word of prayer. Almighty God, You have seated us in Christ in your heavenly Jerusalem, and we thank you and praise you for your great mercy. Keep us ever mindful of our position and reverent as we come to worship before your throne in the Spirit and through the Son. 
Amen.